This is an ABC podcast. That is the sound of minefield time. It's like an alarm that goes off in your life, isn't it? Except if you're listening on the podcast, you've triggered it. So it's not really like an alarm at all. All right. That's the end of that simile. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Um, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life here. Uh, well, Lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. How are you, Scott? I'm just fine. You know, I, I always love listening to how you tried to begin each one of these <laughs> shows. Because there's, there's like an opening coup. There's a, okay, this is kind of the direction I'm going. And then about three or four seconds in... Either a vast new vista opens up for you that you want to explore, <laughs> or you try to begin backpedaling, and both of them are equally wonderful. Oh, yeah. It's more fun than just saying, hello, welcome to the show. <laughs> That's right. It's more fun for me. I shouldn't be presumptuous. Maybe it's far less fun <laughs> for true. listeners, but yes. Anyway. All right. Well, look, this is, this is going to be a great one. I, I, feel it, I feel it in my bones. I've got no idea where this is going, uh, which usually augurs for a very nice conversation. Um, I, I've, I've kind of long suspected, Willie, that Karl Marx, who I'm, I'm otherwise not, I'm not the biggest fan of. I mean, Marx was deeply informed by Aristotle, so I, I guess there is a kind of, there is a genealogy there that can't help but, you know, leave me a little bit disposed to uh, Marxist cultural analysis. But there is something about the way that Marx understood what he referred to as commodity fetishism that I've always found really, really attractive. He had the idea that when something gets made, when something goes through the process of manufacturing, reproduction, distribution, that very process ends up investing the thing that's been produced by an almost magical quality. The, the metaphor that he continued to use was something like a Christian sacrament. It gets infused with grace so that once we buy it, once we purchase it, we're not just buying the thing that's you know of benefit to us because it's useful, but we're getting so much beside. Um, this is his idea of the commodity fetish, that we have this thing and it's like Tolkien's ring. It's this thing that's very, very precious to me that enhances my life and brings me in contact with relationships and, and transcendencies uh, that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. His idea, though, that this, this aspect of magical kind of surplus that commodities end up acquiring, that their fundamental purpose, their fundamental role is to distract us or to disguise from the exploitation that's gone into their production in the first place. Now, these things land in our lap and we're so mesmerized by them that we get lulled into a state of, uh, of, of distraction and we don't think about how they got there in the first place or what workers had to be paid uh, or what materials had to be ripped out of the earth and leaving these great scars in our, in our shared world. It seems to me, Willie, that that idea of the commodity fetish almost perfectly describes the way that technology insinuates itself into everyday life. Our lives, I mean, technology to be successful has to insinuate itself. It has to weasel its way into everyday life until we get to the point where it's just so beautiful that I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't have it. Or it's so useful 
that I simply can't live without it. And on both fronts, what technology, what truly successful technology does is it insinuates itself into life so that we forget about what it might be doing to our lives in the very process of us taking it up and using it. It seems to me that this dovetails very nicely with something we've talked about in numerous occasions over the last two years, and that is our cult or our culture of convenience, that when something um, presents itself as being so convenient that it lulls us into a state of almost unthinkingness uh, where the convenience becomes almost self-justifying. I, I don't know if either of us are great technology addicts. I'm certainly not. I don't believe that you are. But how – I mean how much, Willie, do you find it difficult or easy to retain your moral bearings – amid our technologically saturated daily lives. Uh, yeah, very difficult, which points to, I think, the greatest problem in the mythology of technology, and that is that it is, um, convenience aside, neutral. Hmm. There's no neutrality about it, I don't think. And I think that's been true pretty much with any form of technology. Um, it, it dramatically changes things. It's not merely a tool. It's not merely uh, another method by which you would do what you otherwise would be doing. It changes what you do. It changes who you are. Uh, it changes how you relate. It changes your social being and, as you've gestured towards, your moral being. Um, you can even think about this in fairly mundane ways. You know, the invention of the motor car makes the modern city possible. With, mm. Without the motor car, you can't have big cities because you simply can't traverse them. Mm. I mean, Distance becomes too tyrannical. Yeah. If you, if you try yeah. to go from one end of greater Sydney to the other without a car, uh, without the kinds of rapid trans transportation that has been developed, you know, trains and whatever, although even in, in Sydney, trains can be tricky. But that, that's a difficult thing to do. What's more likely to evolve is a series of villages, right? Or a much smaller city, which is why the old cities that we visit in in the old world, in Europe or the Middle East or whatever, are so compact. They have to be because the technology makes them thus. When you go to America, you suddenly find these cities are big and spread out because that's the that's the where technology delivered you. My point is that what even things we don't think of as technology because they've been so given in our lives are radically transformational. And I. If there's one thing that really gets my goat, it's the idea of technological neutrality that doesn't exist. Mm. Um, so then to ask your question or come back to your question about, you know, moral transformations through the use of technology and feeling yourself becoming a different person. Yeah, I think it's inevitable because as technology dominates more and more and as you put it, insinuates yourself in every aspect of your life, it actually comes to circumscribe and define the limits of what your life is. In other words, the things that really matter in your life are those things that turn up within the various technological packages that you have. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, you don't, well, I've banged on about this for a lot of the last <laughs> 10, 15 years. You don't need me to keep going. There is this beautiful line uh, in my, well, one of my top three favorite novels, Ian Forster's Howard's End, where he talks about Henry Wilcox uh, as a man who is addicted to motor cars and argumentation. And Ian Forster's idea is that motor cars themselves brought with it a form of life that leads to a certain pugnaciousness, a kind of, <laughs> a kind of baked in argumentivity uh, and a certain God, misogyny that goes along with it. Imagine what you say about social media. <laughs> I know, I, I, exactly. So, I uh, actually find this I, uh, I find this idea that 
technology, I think you're right, it opens worlds, it shapes worlds, and it cannot help but have a certain determinative effect on the moral lives that are then lived within that world. But I, I, I just want to, can I just press you on this one step further, Waleed? Because, mm-hmm. again, if, if we think about technology, for technology to be successful, it has to be aesthetically pleasing. I think that is kind of what Marx is getting at with this idea of commodity fetishism. It has to, it has to, to emit a certain aura. You have to sort of love what it brings into one's life. So this act, for instance, of pressing a button and then eight or 15 or 22 minutes later, someone arrives at your door with the food that you've just ordered. I mean, there is a kind of intense aesthetic pleasure that goes along with that that may well be just convenience. There's also a kind of, and you know, I don't want to over-egg this particular pudding, but when, when Ralph Emerson was describing the attraction of slavery, <laughs> just to not you know, draw too long a bow, when he was talking about the attraction of slavery and why it was that a, an effective machine would never, ever, ever replace slavery, he said that the real attraction of slavery was the voluptuousness of total control, the idea of having control of another person's movements. I, I, I wonder... You know, we like the convenience of you press the button and the person delivering your food arrives at your door. But I also wonder sometimes, isn't part of the attraction of the technology the extent to which it places us in total control? There's the voluptuousness of controlling another person's movements that can't really be wholly separated out from the attractiveness or the ease of the interface. Uh it's weird. Is that, is that too much? Because I think Emerson's right, but I also think it's wrong because... <laughs> it, okay, so let, let's take food delivery services because you referenced that. If you knew there weren't people involved in that and it was, all, it was purely mechanised, you, you would still feel great about it, mm-hmm. wouldn't you? Yeah. It, it's still, you still feel like you, you have power over the world in some weird way because... That's mm, true. I, you know, I just... This is what makes me wish, in a way, that, that Seinfeld, as a TV show, but also the height of his stand-up career, was happening now. Now, yeah, absolutely. Because he, the way he would characterise the persona of someone who's ordering something via their smartphone and getting food delivered to them, I think would be incredible. You know, he, he would give it this sort of um, regal pomposity that would be hilarious, but also get to the heart of the matter. And I don't think that that sort of ties us to the notion of being able to push other people around. But I think if we replace those people with machines, I think, I think we're, we're just as happy with that. What we really want is to be able to live the life of a king. And our lives, I think, are far easier than the lives of kings usually were. Mm-hmm. Like I, I should say that even if that activity were thoroughly automated, there is still a human cost behind that. And um, not just in the jobs that are being sacrificed in order for that autom- automation to take place, but also the lowering of the cost then of the productivity in creating that meal in the first place. Even even the tapping of the button, if that were mostly automated, even that I think would implicate us in certain structures of justice. Can, can I just also say, Willie, that if you're a first-time listener to The Minefield, the fact that I've been talking about, you know, I'm being my usual egghead 
self, I'm talking about Marx, Aristotle, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Waleed talks Seinfeld. Pretty much everything <laughs> you need to know about this show is, incorpor- is encapsulated in exactly that. I love it. It's not entirely fair to either of us, but yeah, I'll go with it. I'll go with it for now. Um, this is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app, uh, if you like. And further to that, you can subscribe to our podcast, which is worth doing, I think, because uh, it comes with extra content. We just sort of keep going uh, once the show on the radio is at an end. Uh, at this point, we introduce a guest, and today is no different. Scott. Yeah, we, there's a whole aspect, a huge moral aspect to this conversation that we've not touched on, not because we're ignorant of it, but because we wanted to wait until we brought in our guest to discuss it. Yolandi Strangers is Associate Professor in the Department of Human-Centered Computing at Monash University. With Jenny Kennedy, she's uh, written really a, an extraordinary book called The Smart Wife. Yolandi, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to this this may well come across as a softball or a, what would you call it? Well, an underarm. Underarm is tricky I'm, because I'm lost. in Australia, underarm is what you do to make it impossible to hit a six. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, this is going to be an easy question. <laughs> um, there is no reason why the technologies that we interact with should be gendered. There is no reason why they should be. I think on the best possible construal of the way that we gender – we tend to gender many automated technologies that we interact with. I, I, I kind of think that maybe it's a longing for something like relationality. We don't just want these things to be useful to us. We want to have some kind of relationship. We want them to be part of our lives. That's probably the best light that could be put on it. But as soon as we gender technologies, that does other things, does it not, to the way in which we not just interact with these technologies, but the way that we think about the very claims of justice upon other people. Absolutely. I mean, I would I would slightly disagree, I guess, with your first point that there's no reason. I mean, I think everything you've touched on is the reason that right. those those stereotypes, those gender stereotypes are there to allow us to become familiar and comfortable with new technologies entering our lives en masse. And not just not just our lives in a sort of broad sense, but coming into, in in the case of a smart wife and of um, any technology that's taking on a sort of wifely role, into the most intimate spaces and private spaces of our homes. And so there's a very good reason, in fact, as to why those devices have been feminised and how, and also why the majority of us actually still prefer them to be feminized because, you know, it, it allows us to become comfortable with them, to accept them, to use them in in ways that we may otherwise not be comfortable with if the technology was just sort of a black box sitting there and um, doing what, something, but maybe we weren't sure what that was. So you're saying it's effectively an extension of the humanization of technology. Is that right? Oh, is, well, it, is it that or, or this is part of the process of insinuation, that this is one of the ways it's, if you like, it's trading on the very, the very feminization of certain forms of technology are trading on certain presumptions that we have and the very process of feminization is, if you like, not just trading on but then in turn reinforcing or deepening those presumptions. 
exactly. Yeah. So it's trading on the stereotypes and the ideals that we're familiar with in, in our human world. It's assigning uh, human tasks to a technology and then associating that with all those forms of familiarity that come with those feminized tasks. And then in turn, as you say, Scott, it's reinforcing those stereotypes right back at us and having an incremental effect in terms of um, changing our very perceptions of gender and, as Jenny and I kind of argue, undermining some of the progress that we've made over many, many years uh, towards having gender progressive societies by, by taking us back to some of these more traditional stereotypes. So I don't, I know, I don't want to leave that point. Like I want to come back to it, but it just reminds me of the fact that, you know, with um, satellite navigation systems, you can choose the voice. Mm. Uh, and there's a range of accents that you can choose. Are, are there male voices on those as well? I'm not actually sure. Um, there are, yeah. There yeah. Are. So does, I don't know, how do you factor that into the calculation here? Well, often, yeah, often we sort of just come back to the voice. And I, I guess the first thing we sort of have to recognise is that this goes way, way beyond just the voice. There are so many other ways now that these devices are being feminised. Uh, they might be feminised by name, like Alexa, for example. They might be mm. feminised by their form and the use of feminine, feminine sort of curves and grooves in robotics, which also uh, is a form of acceptance that relies on particular types of stereotypes. They're also feminized by their personalities in, in the kind of service-oriented roles they have towards the world, their friendly personas, their eagerness to please us, and also by the roles that they're expected to perform, particularly in the case of the smart wife. So the smart wife, you know, we, we say covers a range of kind of traditional feminized tasks, including housekeeping, homemaking, um, caregiving, and intimate services like sex. So, you know, the voice is just one part of a much broader kind of spectrum of attributes that are now being feminized into these technologies. And often, even when we change the voice, it can actually have this sort of perverse effect, kind of like what you were saying before, Waleed, about this, you know, this myth that technology is neutral. You know, in many ways, there's also a myth that a technology can be gender neutral if we just change the voice or if we we actually take gender out of the voice altogether and come up with a gender neutral voice as some of these devices now do. Because we still aren't getting at all these other ways in which this technology is gendered. And in many ways, actually, it becomes more problematic when we take try to take the voice out of the equation. Because then we just think, oh, well, problem solved. You know, we fixed it rather than thinking about all these deeper layers of feminization so that are going can, on. Can you make that concrete for me? So um, pick your device, your Alexa or whatever it is device. I don't even know what they are really because I've <laughs> never used them. But um, if I made that voice male, how is it still doing the work you're describing? Because it's still um, – it's still kind of taking on traditional roles in the home. It's still kind of doing things like helping you out with your shopping lists and reminding you to do things. And now increasingly Alexa's getting into the kind of emotional care market where it's got skills like hunches that will preempt your moods and um, your um, emotions and kind of make particular recommendations around that. And I guess, you know, taking this outwards, well, it, the issue here is comes back to the question about whether or not 
these types of technologies are the best solution to what are very complex social problems that relate to, you know, the gender distribution of labour in society. So as women have kind of gone into the workforce or as we've had a a rise in aged care um, needs in in our society and many societies, um, we've kind of started to turn, sometimes in quite large ways, to technologies as a solution to that. You know, outsourcing essentially all of this stuff that traditionally fell to women, um, but for various reasons now is not is not so much. That's not so much the case. Right, but I can. And and we're saying I I can see the counter argument here, or the response to that would be yes. But if you make them a male voice, you subvert the gender stereotype, and by having these things in place to pick up that sort of work that women had traditionally done, it may be that that means that men don't pick up that work, but it does mean that women become freed from it. And so it has that sort of emancipatory potential. It does It does have the potential, but I think there's still lots of issues with that. I mean, that assumes that this technology does actually do that work. Sure. Does it it sure. does actually yeah. pick up those, you know, can actually do that. And and in you know, in many cases, that's not actually the case. And, you know, the very idea that you can, you can assign emotional and caring labours to a device, you know, is, is deeply contested. Yes, and, no, I accept uh, all that. I accept all that. Yeah. But the gendered aspect of it, I mean, it, it is subversive, isn't it? If if it were to be masculinised in some way, wouldn't it do the opposite of the work that you're describing or the, have the opposite effect? Well, not necessarily, no. I mean, I think that unless you're sort of addressing all the various other ways that it's gendered as well, um, then you're sort of not able to kind of get at some of those those broader social effects that I'm talking about. So, look, sure, you can you can gender the male and some of these issues may go away or they may be less obvious, but I don't think it kind of gets around the types of personalities that they have, the other feminine attributes they have or the roles they're intended to perform. So it's not that it's... I'm not completely disagreeing with you that it wouldn't go some way to help. I'm just saying it doesn't go far enough. But I think one of the things that we're leaving out here, and, and I may well be sort of really... Uh, old-fashioned or just a, sort of an ethical stick in the mud here. But going back to the point that I raised before about Ralph Waldo Emerson, I mean, he regarded slavery as being an inherently masculine institution uh, because it reflected a kind of masculinist desire for control, for the proper ordering of the world uh, with the male figure at the top of it. I mean, it strikes me not just in those who are creating the technology, but also the rapid uptake of these forms of technology, primarily among men, and also the kind of fetish that a lot of men have with automation. You know, they prefer to automate rather than to do the proper work that any responsible person ought to do around the house. I wonder if what's at the heart of this, one of the myths that's that's being self-perpetuating here, is the unassailability of the need to control and the extent to which the very ordering of the world around the central or predominant male figure, I mean, that's part of, I think, the moral debility that's being reproduced through this. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I don't sort of, in the fieldwork and the research we've done, that, that doesn't ring true to me. So, mm. um, we don't find that there is somebody trying to take over everything in the home and taking some sort of, you know, perverse pleasure in using automation to kind of run the home. It's it's actually much more about making a contribution to the household, about providing care within the household, even when it is, and it often is, you know, the man kind of predominantly taking up the role of setting up all this stuff and, and setting, you know, using it even in the home. So I'm, I'm not sure that that, 
yeah, that kind of dystopian narrative um, can be said to be happening here. What I what I think is more at the heart of what's going on is you know a broader problem that we have now across all of society, which is this sort of techno-solutionism that we jump to whenever any problem presents itself to us. And yeah. the rush towards automation, you know, as part of that, in solving what are actually, as I was saying before, you know, these really complex social problems. And just assuming that the way to kind of get ourselves out of all of these situations is to hand it over to, to a device. Uh, and you know, there's just so much research now that shows that that's not the case. I mean, sometimes the intentions of the designers do play out to some extent in people's lives, but quite often the opposite happens. And I mean, one of one of the classic examples that Jenny and I talk about is that all of these technologies that are coming into people's homes to help them to save time and to add convenience and what have you, have actually created what's been called uh, additional digital housekeeping, which is all the work and the, and the extra labour that's required to maintain those technologies. And most of that labour is actually currently falling to men. Mm. So this is a really kind of interesting um, contradiction in the whole promise of smart home technologies and, and the idea that they're going to provide this solution to the domestic labour in the home and then the actual reality of what occurs when they come into our lives. I, I just see this uh, argument forming before my eyes, though, that it's increasing male domestic labour and decreasing female domestic labour. That could be fun to play with, couldn't it? Yes, <laughs> yes, but a certain kind. But but a certain kind, yeah. and I think that's the, yeah. That, yeah. that's the important part. Oh, believe me, I'm not here to defend these technologies. I've been... This. I'm, I'm actually trying to contain my rage at the way <laughs> and the role that they have uh, in our lives. Um, Yolanda, just hang on for a second because we're done with the radio portion of the show now, but we'll keep going on the podcast if that's okay with you. Um, Yolanda Stringers is Associate Professor in the Department of Human-Centred Computing at Monash University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Uh, we're done with the radio part of the show, but we'll continue on the podcast now. And if you won't join us there, we'll see you next week. So, Yolandi, what I think about with this, I mean, I, I clearly haven't thought about it in the gendered terms that, that you um, have contributed, um, but I have thought about it in the broader terms you were trying to articulate there, which is this sort of um, outsourcing of everything to a device. So this, this seems to me an outgrowth of just basic um, neoliberal thought, really, where for every problem there is a product that we should seek out to solve it. Um, mm. And... Uh, I don't want to drop any of my kids in this, but I was having a, a a debate with one of my kids about this recently who had a headache and was saying, uh, I want a Panadol. And I was like, well, have you had a drink? Have you eaten? Um, no, not really, but I have this headache, so I really want to get rid of it. Okay, right. And so we end up in this quite heated exchange where I'm basically just forcing them to put something in their mouths that will nourish them. And if the headache persists after that, then we will turn to the commodity, right? We will turn to the solution in a pill. Um, devices are just the next form of pill, really, aren't they? It, but the capacity and the range of things they might achieve is so much greater. And I, I, I think there are twin things going on there. There's the the commodification process and, and the idea of solving every problem with a commodity. But then there's the idea that we shouldn't have problems. So we shouldn't have discomforts. All of these things are actually the things that get in the way of life rather than the things that are a necessary part of life and might even be forming us in some kind of way. Yeah, look, absolutely, Walid. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, 
I, I guess the question to ask again is, you know, are these are these devices the the best solution for so many problems? I mean, and, and maybe even another question to ask there is, what conversations do they stop us from having? And you know, they could be really big conversations about the future of our ageing population, for example, and whether or not social and assistive care robots are the solution to that. Or they could be, you know, a, a conversation happening in your household, like you just kind of gave an example of, Waleed. I was right um, in that exchange, by the way, just to be clear. Is that, <laughs> would you agree with me on that at the very least? I need something to walk away with here. Absolutely, yeah. Look, I mean, if you're, for example, having debates in your home about who should do the vacuuming or, you know, whose turn it is to wash up or whatever, and the solution to that becomes a robo-vacuum cleaner or <laughs> an Alexa to remind you of something, I mean... To me, that that actually sidesteps an opportunity to talk about the the divisions of labour in the home and 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 whose whose kind of roles it is to do certain things and how that changes and shifts when different people take on different roles and responsibilities outside the home as well or through through childcare or what have you. Um, and jumping to the the device as the kind of pill here. Yeah, it can it can really stop us from having those conversations, which we desperately need to have uh, about about these kinds of changes going on in society and all the different jobs that kind of need to get done but as to, part of our everyday lives. To put the and sorry, Scott, I seem to be um, injecting myself far too much. Oh, here. A bit like technology, hey. Mm. But to put the the opposite case here, so take the robo vacuum. Uh, it is like you are looking into my house at the moment, uh, say, <laughs> which is a little uncomfortable. Um, but to take that example. I see your point about how it it avoids a conversation. But if enough of that stuff happens, then those conversations might in the end become a bit redundant, right? And so norms could be recast in that way. You, do, you don't always have to confront every conversation for a problem to be solved. Sometimes you can manoeuvre or life can manoeuvre you in ways that just take you around the conversation, can't they? They can. And look, maybe the RoboVac... Um starts the conversation. You're right. But I mean, that's not typically what I've seen in my research. So, you know, typically the RoboVac comes in as a potential solution to somebody's vacuuming responsibilities and it may create more work like we were talking about before. You know, RoboVacs, um, as much as they're kind of promised to provide fairly easy cleaning, many of the people I've spoken with through my research who have them say they, you know, they're constantly kind of monitoring it or picking up after it or having to move things around or what have you. So there's that extra kind of work then associated with the robotic vacuum cleaner itself and just the kind of tech work involved in setting it up. And and, and so that creates different conversations and maybe potentially valuable ones as well, as you say. But it doesn't it doesn't kind of get us out of um, out of the kind of the need, I guess, for still facing up to some of these issues around um, the gender division of labour in homes. Um, so this actually brings me back, I think, to the point that maybe I was kind of clumsily maybe gesturing towards before. I mean, it just does strike me, and this is one of the things, I guess, Yolandi, that really struck me powerfully reading your book, is that the tasks surrounding the setting up the te- of the technology, the fixing of the technology, even if it's relatively more time-consuming than pulling out the vacuum every once in a while and vacuuming the house yourself – that these things are somehow forms of labor that are increasingly being regarded as appropriate for men to do. 
Whereas the other tasks that are some of the proper ways in which we care for and we nurture one another and we nurture the home environment, these continue to be, if you like, tasks that are regarded as being inappropriate. I mean, I, I, I guess one, one of the images that really struck me early on in, in your book is the idea of the kind of the robotic maid coming out and doing things when nobody's looking, that housework is supposed to be something, if you like, in this ideal sense, that's not seen. It just happens and we don't have to worry about it. Whereas as we've discussed in the show before, Waleed, I guess it's long struck me, and, and I, I don't want to be militant about this, but it is something I sort of feel quite passionately about, that one of the forms of everyday justice that we practice is what John Rawls referred to as the proper role of turn-taking, that sometimes it just falls to one member of a, of a relationship or of a family to do something for the sake of the others. Um, and, and I guess sort of wanting, wanting housework to become invisible or to become automated, there is a kind of moral failing I can't help but feel uh, that's being missed. It's not just a lack of proper conversations that are being missed, but it's also work that really is properly done by a moral agent as one of the ways in which we care for and nurture our lives together. Yeah, look, that's a really interesting point, Scott. And I think there is a lot of things um, that do require a person to deliver them, you know, in a morally appropriate way and to oversee things in a way that provides, you know, a, a level of care that I don't think can yet be provided by a device. But also to your other point, I mean, you're right as well about with with men kind of increasingly taking on a lot of these digital responsibilities that is having impacts on their contribution to other types of labour happening in the home or still happening in the home. And one of the things that Jenny and I are concerned about and one of the ways this could sort of go is a further entrenching of kind of masculine, feminine, stereotypical roles in the home where those associated with the automation and the technology, you know, falling more to, to men and those associated with, you know, those things that can't be automated, the caregiving maybe aspects of, of the home or... Um, you know, kind of just traditional cooking and what have you, is is kind of more back towards women. And so that's one of the ways that, that this kind of could could send us. But I mean it's it's definitely not this isn't a fate accomplete, you know, there there are so many different directions all of this could go and it really is kind of happening around us as we speak. One of the other things that Jenny and I explore and, and actually propose is the possibility for us to start to think about this more critically and actually design technologies and bring in, bring technologies into the home that encourage us to perform what's called technical masculinity or technical femininity. So that that is kind of a device that that is typically considered a masculine kind of automated technology that that does or helps somebody do a traditionally feminized task. So using kind of using technology to start to mix up some of these gender mm. stereotypes and actually encourage different genders to engage in different types of activities in the home. And that's not currently what's really happening, but it is it is sort of like one I guess design pathway that could be explored here as a potential way of addressing some of this. So can I get you to apply your analysis retrospectively to say the washing machine or the dishwasher? What what do you mean, sorry? I'm well, it strikes me the... that there's similar things, right? The technological interventions or solutions into mm. what were previously, there's still a bit of labour involved. I mean, you have to stack the dishwasher, you have to put the stuff in the washing machine. So I, it doesn't entirely displace the labour, but it does drastically reduce it when you compare it to, you know, using a washing board or beating clothes on a rock to get them dry and all that, that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, that's true. But I mean, there was a whole change in domestic work that happened around the introduction of those devices as well. I mean, Ruth Schwartz-Cowan is a historian. She wrote a fantastic book called More Work for Mother, which was about the industrial revolution of the home. And it was the time when all of those kinds of labour-saving devices came into the home, like washing machines and irons and, you know, refrigerators and what have you. And what it meant was effectively the end of outside paid work, so the end of outside helpers, and the cement cementation of women's role in the home as the primary you know, provider and caregiver of all those domestic services. So she argues that even though these devices save time, you know, for the task itself, they actually created more work for women and they actually really push women into being, you know, the, the primary labourers of the household. So in the same way that, you know, email was meant to stop us having to work for so long, but actually it's expanded the realm yeah. of yeah. work, right? And pretty much every technology that you look at has a similar story where it promises one thing and it, it may deliver partly on those promises. I mean, there's no doubt the washing machine is, is quicker and save time compared to, you know, the ways that it used to be done. But then if you look at its sort of effects more broadly across society and you're saying, yeah, same with any technology, I mean, flights were, you know, and telecommunications were meant to reduce our, our, um, our travel, but they've actually enhanced it and increased it because now we have more connections that we want to maintain all around the world. So these kinds of narratives, they're actually not unusual. Um, and it, you know, I think it's quite naive to look at any technology on the promises and claims that it makes and assume that that's exactly what's going to happen because that does, you know, that's not the story of any technology ever historically. I'm, um, I'm, I'm an odd person. Uh, and I'm going to embrace my oddness for for, for just a moment. Are we still talking about the topic here, Scott, or have you just yeah, we into are. some kind yeah, of confessional yeah. mode? Yeah, well, <laughs> a, little, a little bit of both. Okay. I, um, I, I, I had to open a few years back uh, an exhibition here in Brisbane of the sculpture, the art of Patricia Piccinini, who's one of my favorite artists. Um, she, uh, I don't know if either of you have ever seen her work, but it really is quite striking. It's, uh, some of it is kind of uh, human-animal uh, hybrids, but increasingly in her work, she's done, I think, what can really properly be called human-technology hybrids. So, creatures that exist as a hybrid of the two things, may well, they, they may well kind of still bear on them, on the pieces of art, their kind of an original use. So creatures, for instance, that still have tire treads on their back, for instance, from an earlier life as a tire, uh, and now somehow strangely animate. One of the things that Patricia Piccinini does, however, in her installations and in her art, is she invariably shows human or humanoid creatures in what can only be referred to, I think, as a kind of loving or tender inclination towards these pieces of technology. So there's a kind of longing for the relationship, yes, but also there's a refusal to see these, these things that had a particular use as just being defined by their use value. I guess one of the things that I've always been, or I've, I've not always, but maybe I've long been concerned about is, you know, the stories of abuse of forms of technology. So whether it be uh, insults hurled at Alexa or Siri, and then kind of these lovely or funny demure sort of taking it on the chin or sort of batting them away. Or we had a conversation, I don't know if you remember this, Waleed, we had, did a show, was it last year, the year before with Rob Sparrow on the ethics of committing an act of sexual violence against a, oh, the robots. Yeah. a sex robot. Yeah. yeah. So, so these forms of kind of, of abusiveness towards technology as opposed to forms of technology that may well themselves 
properly elicit a certain degree of tenderness. This is really, I, I realize this is a strange way of putting it, Yolanda. You may well not want to go anywhere near this. But I'm wondering, I mean, technology doesn't always simply have to be reduced to its use value. Isn't it proper for us to, in our own interaction with forms of technology, but also in the way that we maybe train our kids to interact with technology, to train them towards and then in turn to kind of hope that technologies have designs built into them that ought properly to elicit forms of kind of tenderness and, and inclination rather than simply, for want of a better term, use and abuse? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we have these devices, they're there to be used, and that is that is certainly one one perspective, but that's not, again, doesn't sort of reflect the reality of what's going on, which is that people develop relationships with inanimate objects that we know we've, we've done that for millennia and before technology in the current form even existed. But now what's happening is we're developing relationships with technologies that are starting to sound and look and act a lot more like like humans. And in those situations, yeah, I, I agree that there is a moral obligation on the part of companies who design these technologies, but also on the people who are using them and talking about them in the in the public domain, to um, to uphold and and reinforce the kinds of expectations we have for humanity and for society at large. Now, that's not to conflate technology with people. You know, it's not to say, oh, well, Alexa is a, is a woman. No, she's not. She's a piece of code and programming designed by, you know, Amazon. But she does have an impact on the social relations around us. She does have an impact on our expectations of gender and of what, as a society, we're prepared to expect and, and value in terms of um, how we treat each other. And so on that case alone, I think there is a really strong argument to make that we need to be thinking about the kinds of conversations these devices have with us that they allow and also yeah how we as you said Scott you know which we teach our children to interrelate with these devices as well who have um, there's actually a lot of research with kids that shows that um, they have a, a far less kind of ability to distinguish between humans and machines than an adult does but even for adults the line is a little bit blurry now as well Geez, what a bombshell to drop right at the end! Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that's a that's actually a show, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't even thought about this about the idea of kids not being able to distinguish so easily between. God, we don't have time. I really want to ask this question: like, Is it is it just because they're young and they haven't learnt those distinguishing processes, or are you saying this is going to be part of their lives forever because they've grown up in that environment where they're merged? Oh yeah, like like you said, it's kind of a very complicated area, but um, it's that they may not be able to distinguish between yeah the difference between Alexa being a device or Alexa being a woman. Now I don't know if those things can change as they grow up. Um, it's not my personal field of expertise, so you'd be right, better off yeah, getting yeah, a yeah. guest on the show who can actually talk to you about that. Can certainly recommend some fantastic people who are working in this area, um, but from that young age, yeah, there, there is you know if you if you're yelling at Alexa, well, how's that different from yelling at mum? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking that kids often can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality either. But there comes a point where they do. 
Um, but it's also, I, I mean, in, in fairness, Willie, it's also the attribution of human or human-like emotions to things that may well not bear those emotions, whether it be yeah. a doll that one sleeps with or whether it be the, the family pet or whether it be a plant in the backyard. So, I mean, you know, w- whether or not those attributions are correct, and I think in some cases they're probably more correct than we like to give them credit for, but it is probably that kind of that wider net of empathy and sympathy that children can cast out. Right, but the doll is an interesting example. I mean, that's a form of technology. It happens to be a very, very old one. But it is a form of technology, and it it has similar things about it, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So, so are we looking at anything that's different? I mean, it's different in extent, I suppose, and, and maybe aesthetic and functionality. But the core of it, the core ideas, are similar, aren't they? Well, yes and no. I think it depends what company it is that you're looking at here in terms of their interests. I mean, Google is interested in extracting data from us and then, you know, kind of on selling that. That's this kind of business model. Amazon's much more interested in selling us stuff. So, you know, even if you just look at the business models of the different companies, their intention then and and also their definition of empathy and care Mm. is going to be quite different because Amazon's more likely to recommend us a product or something to buy as its form of empathy and care. It's more more likely to recommend the pill, right, Waleed, you know, right. going back to your Panadol, because it's something it can sell to us rather than, you know, actually having a conversation with us that may not result in them making money. Whereas the doll we're projecting onto, so the doll's not actively offering us something back, right? We have. To- well, traditionally, when, yeah, I think I haven't thought about this in great detail myself in terms of the comparison with dolls, but I would think that doll companies were more interested in selling dolls rather than selling something else, like selling our data or using yeah. the doll to sell us you know, another set of third-party products. So that in itself is quite a unique distinction. But also Amazon and Google now and, and a number of other assistants, they're increasingly in the business of selling care. So their, their market, you know, they're, they're actually being marketed towards parents as a way of assisting their children with homework or it's, it's kind of probably more similar to the role of television than the role of a doll, um, except now Amazon's taking on or Alexa's taking on these kinds of additional functions. It's not just entertainment that it can provide. It's also um, education, mm. but education from a company, not from a government. Mm. And and that, that, you know, that's the thing we've got to come back to here is whose ideas of education, whose ideas of empathy and care and for what purpose are being put into these devices and then given to children or to anyone? And, you know, is that is that what we kind of want to be reproducing en masse? Is that, again, is that a good solution to uh, the problems that we might be having around caring for children in very busy homes or... Indeed, providing education in the middle of a lockdown. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I took a few minutes. I probably shouldn't have, but I'm kind of glad I did, actually, because I think it it Mm. sets up some interesting areas for us to explore further. Um, Yolandi, thank you very much. It's it's been a really, really stimulating conversation, I think. Well, certainly for me and for Scott and me, I think for everyone who was listening, it'd be similar. So thank you. And for me as well. So thanks so much for having me on. And um, for our listeners that are furious that we didn't talk about our digital overlords like Google and Apple and Amazon until the last few minutes, we did in fact do a show with Shoshana Zuboff and her remarkable book called Surveillance Capital around this time last year. So we have covered a lot of this territory before. Yolanda, you helped us traverse all new terrain. That was wonderful. Fantastic. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.